I'm Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. I told you at the beginning of this season of Ave Explores that we were talking about the Eucharist because there's a need for a deeper understanding of who Jesus Christ is present to us, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Blessed Sacrament. And Father Craig Vosick talked about how the Eucharist is not a holy object. It's not this thing that I go get. It's this person that I encounter. And over the course of our conversations with our wide-ranging list of guests, all bringing their personal experiences and understanding of Jesus and the Eucharist and their relationship with Jesus and the Eucharist, I've mentioned, perhaps you've noticed, quite regularly, the National Eucharistic Revival. This moment within our church right now where we are working on, and I say we because we are all part of this, working on an intentional push to more deeply desire the chances to encounter our Lord, these opportunities to encourage people to turn to Jesus Christ in the Blessed Sacrament, these moments of of challenge to try to encounter Jesus in more intentional and particular ways because we need to be brought back to life. If the Eucharist is not a holy object, it's a person that I encounter When there's a revived understanding of the Eucharist, it means that I as a person am revived because I'm encountering a person who brings new life. The story of the National Eucharistic Revival is a pretty profound one. And the different folks involved in the planning of the revival, the planning of the Congress that'll be taking place next July in 2024, the moments of opportunity that have been presented to people to more intentionally understand Jesus Christ and to participate in this movement of revival. They're numerous. They're quite powerful. It's really cool to see how this is all unfolded. And for the next couple of weeks, our episodes here on Ave Explorers are going to look at this work of the revival, the story of the revival, the work of the revival, what it means for us to be revived that an understanding of the Eucharist right now in 2023 in the United States of America to talk about the Eucharist is to also be talking about the revival of a love of the Eucharist. I sat down with a very dear friend of mine. I've known Joel for years. First, we worked in collaboration with a few different things happening at conferences and through Life Teen, and now he's the chief mission officer for the National Eucharistic Congress. And not just a a guy whose boots are on the ground doing the work of the revival, but a faithful man, a father, a husband, a, a man who loves Jesus, who talks about the Eucharist from that perspective of husband, of dad, of man who wants to love the Lord. All of this is part of our Ave Explorers series on the Eucharist. You can find everything over at AveMariaPress.com slash Ave Explorers. Tons of resources available for you there. We hope that you enjoy this episode, this great conversation with my friend Joel Stepanek about the work of the Eucharistic Revival. Fellow Ave author Joel Stepanek, welcome to Ave Explores. Hey, Katie, it's good to be with you, as it always yeah. is. This is a treat. It's nice that we get to kick off. So just full, full context for folks listening. You're our first interview for this whole season, even though it's not airing until about halfway through So I'm excited to kind of get things started with you, even though people won't hear it until a little bit later. Tell us who you are, where you are, and what you do right now. I am a revivalist in the (laughs) city of Phoenix. I'm workshopping that one. This is actually the first place I'm rolling it out. And I hope by the end of this, people will be revivalists as well. I live in Phoenix, Arizona, sunny Phoenix, Arizona, in the most perfect time of year to be in Phoenix, Arizona. I have worked in ministry for going to be close to about 20 years in some capacity. I got into the ministry world right out of shortly after high school, not right out of high school, but I did like an internship as a youth minister in high school. Mm -hmm. So I kind of count that as my beginning (laughs) phases. I I was allowed to plan the high school retreat for my peers with youth ministers. So I count that as the beginning. That was the beginning of my time. And I've worked in a variety of capacities for a long time with a youth ministry apostolate called Life Teen, but most recently with the National Eucharistic Congress, 
which has been an absolute joy uh, to serve in the efforts of Eucharistic revival in the United States mm-hmm. of America. That was a big jump. Tell me why you made it. It was a big jump. I worked closely in the efforts of how we supported parishes for a long time. So I did curriculum at Life Teen, mm-hmm. which was super fun. I love to write. I love to be creative. And as I grew in my role there, it took on more of a role with parish support, which it always had been. When you're writing curriculum and youth nights, you have to know who you're writing for. And so there was always a lot of dialogue and research into the parish situation in the United States and across the world. It was a global movement. And what I started to come across over and over again was this pattern of the youth ministries that really were thriving. Mm-hmm never were in a vacuum. They were always a part of a larger ecosystem in a parish Mm -hmm. that had something unique about it. And for a while, it's like, it's the pastor and pastor support, huge and critical. And then it was, well, it's got a really great youth minister and good people too. And that was oftentimes true. But as I reflected more deeply on it, it was the reality that those parishes had a Eucharistic centered culture. They Mm -hmm. had a environment that embraced the sacramental reality of the Eucharist as the source and summit of all that they did. And that had implications throughout the parish. And that's what made it thrive. Mm -hmm. And then the places where it wouldn't, other things in that parish also weren't working out. It wasn't like youth ministry was just tanking unless there was, maybe there wasn't a great youth minister there or not great volunteers, but oftentimes the parish itself was struggling. And in those cases, you could put a great youth minister in and nothing was going to happen because the water itself wasn't conducive to life. Mm -hmm. And my heart started to ache for that. Like, how do we help parishes experience revitalization and revival? Because the parish is a vital part of, it should be a vital part of our communities and our families. And if that's not healthy, then we are in real trouble as, as a church. And my heart just ached for that. And I, I once heard somebody say, and I don't even remember who it was, might've been Andy Stanley. I'm not sure. But they said, you know, you need to look for what your heart breaks, what breaks your heart. And that's where you want to go serve. If something's really breaking your heart, that's, that's an invitation to ministry. Because those, the things that break our heart, sometimes they break God's heart. Yeah. Along that same time, this Eucharistic revival was starting to be more public. And mm-hmm. I've been invited into some planning efforts and after a few conversations with the executive director, he said, you know, I think we have a role here for you. And he gave me a job description. And it was one of those moments where the ministry description was like I had written it of all the things mm-hmm. I would love to do. Yeah. Targeted what broke my heart, which is revitalizing parishes in the United States. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I'm sold. I mean, here I am. Send me. Yeah. Kind of thing. I, I think I've told you this both in person and I think on a radio interview, you texted me like, I don't know, 24 hours before you shared it publicly that this is what you were going to do. And I gasped in my kitchen and I turned to my husband. I told him what you just shared. And I went, I can think of no one better to do this. And Tommy said, well, you need to tell him that. Like you absolutely need 100% tell him that this is exactly what he should be doing. And it is very much spirit driven, this invitation, this response to be a revivalist, to to participate in this very necessary work. I want to ask about the Congress Really, we're going to get into it in a second. But you said something about your heart breaking for parishes that weren't thriving because it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like because they were getting away from the heart of it. A lot of parishes across our country do a lot of really great programming, but then like mass on Sunday is just kind of blah or like they don't have a chapel or, you know, you have a conversation about, okay, what's first communion prep like? And it's a weekend retreat and like weekday classes that have nothing exciting. Do you think that we are seeing numbers dip and disaffiliation and and parishes closing in a lot of different places because we've kind of gotten away from like what makes us Catholic, which is the Eucharist. And I realize this is a big question, but like, are you, you're seeing the places that thrive because they've prioritized the right thing. So what's happening in the places that aren't thriving? Why do you think that's happening? Why do you think we're getting away from the Eucharist in those places? Yeah, you're picking at something that has been a part of my reflection for a couple of years mm-hmm. and just in my own experience as a, a, a pew Catholic, right? And the scripture that's been coming to mind over the past few months is Jesus talking about salt, right? The whole, mm-hmm. if salt loses saltiness, with what can it be seasoned? Yeah. If, if as Catholics, we lose the thing that differentiates us 
and ties us back to the Last Supper, the Eucharist, with what can we be seasoned? Mm -hmm. And I think there's something really important for all of us to reflect on because you hit it perfectly. If we lose our understanding of, of who the Eucharist is and Eucharistic reverence and how we reflect that in our liturgical celebrations and the art of celebrating liturgy and the reverence by how we celebrate liturgy, it doesn't matter if we've got awesome programs or a really mm -hmm. cool youth center or an amazing parish hall, or if we do a bunch of social outreach, those are all good things, but they're not going to season us mm -hmm. as Catholics. Those are all things that anybody else can do. The character that differentiates us is the fact that I receive Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity on Sunday with a community of people who I'm then united with, both seen and unseen. And then all of those other things take on a different character, I think. Mm -hmm. Like my service to the poor is, is different. My outreach to youth is different because I'm driving them towards someone and I have a tangible place of encounter for that someone and that, that person. That I'm not bringing people into contact with a theory but a person. And I think our celebration of the liturgy in particular and our ability to offer Eucharistic adoration and confession mm -hmm. all tie hand in hand with this, this lived experience, the Sunday experience, mm -hmm. I would say, of because like our reception of the Eucharist colors the Sunday experience. And that's the place that most of our parishioners will go. They're not going to go to Bible study or to youth night, but Sunday mass, they can receive catechesis there. Mm -hmm. They can be evangelized there. They can experience community there. But most importantly, they'll encounter Jesus Christ there. Mm. And those pieces, I think, that flow out of it, that changes how we, we approach everything else. But I think that we have gotten away from that in some places a little mm -hmm. bit where it's an afterthought, where it should be the very first thing we think about. Mm -hmm. How do we make this experience of liturgy reflect our belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and make this a place of meaningful encounter for people in that? And that's why I'd say there's mm -hmm. two subheadings there of like, how do we offer adoration at our parish so that mm -hmm. people continue to have that encounter that draw, that draws out of them a longing to receive? And then how do we offer confession so that people are in a state of grace to receive? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I love what you're saying here that if we've gotten away from it, what what's the point, right? Like why, why not just go yeah. somewhere else where we can get coffee, donuts and community and some places objectively that are doing it a little bit better than we are, but we stay because of the Eucharist. So how do we foster this understanding of it? And that's really where the bishops, I think, kind of envisioned the revival. Tell us the story. We had Bishop Cousins earlier in the season, but tell us really where this idea came from in a post-COVID world, churches have shut down, people aren't coming back the same way we thought they were, right? Absence makes the heart grow fonder, but then also absence kind of breeds a, a lack of familiarity, you know, I'm out of practice and this is no longer a priority for me. Where did the idea for this Eucharistic Congress, Eucharistic Revival moment come from and how is it playing out? There was a study done by uh, Pew that evaluated belief in, Catholic belief in people against the teachings of the Catholic Church as mm -hmm. far as transubstantiation and our understanding of the Eucharist. And the results of that were pretty jarring in that uh, only about a third of Catholics said, I understand and I believe what the church teaches about the real presence in the Eucharist. There was a follow-up study that was then done that confirmed those, those results and that was commissioned uh, internally. And I think that then the bishops were presented with those things and said, wow, we've got, we have a crisis of, of I think, catechesis, of belief, of evangelization. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, it's a crisis of the heart where, again, it's not a thing. So I could know and there were people in the study. There's a subsection of Catholics who said, I know what the church teaches. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that. And I'm, that's common, not just in Catholicism, but in any belief system, you will have people who say, no, I know what my church teaches. I don't believe that. And there was a much larger group of people who would say, I don't know what the church teaches. And now that you're telling me what the church teaches, I, I don't agree with that. Mm -hmm. You know. And I think the question, because our bishops have a heart to serve, like these are, these are shepherds and their question was, well, what do we do? Like, how do we really reinvigorate belief in the Eucharist, recognizing that to believe in the Eucharist and to have a relationship with Jesus Christ through the blessed sacrament is the thing that makes us Catholic. And that maybe part of the reason why folks weren't coming back after COVID was 
that they were like, what's the, to your point earlier, what, what am I coming back for? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I've now gone several months, maybe even up to a year, not going to mass. And my life doesn't seem that much different. I actually, I kind of like having more of a relaxing Sunday. It isn't at the point of Sabbath to relax and, and be with my family. What am I missing? Other than, again, maybe at my church, the preaching was better. And so I missed that, but I could watch that on YouTube. Now all my, my pastor stuff is on YouTube. Or there's other preachers I can tune into mm-hmm. who I resonate with maybe a bit more. And because there wasn't this heart of, but the thing that's drawing me back isn't the preaching or the music or even the community. It's the fact that I have a privileged encounter to receive Jesus Christ that I can't get anywhere else. And I think that broke the bishop's heart. We talk about things breaking people's hearts and the bishop said, well, what do we do? And the response was to say, let's really intentionally focus on what revival looks like. Mm -hmm. And there's two facets to revival, right? There are the things we do to create conditions by which a fire can start. But the difference with revival is that we don't get to decide if the fire starts. The Holy Spirit decides if the fire starts. And so I think there's a humility in all of this too, in saying we're calling for revival, we're begging for revival, we desire revival, and we're going to set the kindling up, we're going to set the structures up, we're going to create the conditions for this to really catch. But at the end of the day, we have to ask the Holy Spirit to bring that, that fire and trust that that the Lord desires this revival. And so there's this beautiful tension of God saying, prepare your hearts, rend your hearts, teach, preach, prepare, and then wait. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what's cool about stepping into this moment is being able to do all the things over here while we're praying and we're fasting for the Holy Spirit to, to fulfill a promise. Yeah. You used a phrase there, this privileged encounter with the Lord, which I've heard that phrase before. I haven't heard it in a long time. I certainly haven't heard it at preaching in mass anytime lately. Not to say that I'm not going to a great parish where there's a, a deep love of going to mass and receiving the Eucharist. And we have an adoration chapel and our, our students get to go once a week, which is great to hear from a five-year-old telling you about going to the Eucharist. And, but that privileged encounter idea, I don't know that a lot of people are thinking of it that way. Like I, yeah. I get the vibe and we, we both travel. I get the vibe that a lot of people, it's a punch the time card. Okay. I did my hour, yeah. right? Like I even think of my own family. We go to vigil on Saturday. So we fulfill our obligation and receive Jesus. But then also we can like stay in our pajamas on Sunday morning until 9am. And like, I'm not necessarily proud of the fact that that's why we choose to go to the vigil. It also works with like nap time and bedtime and stuff. So I think the Lord understands, but there has to kind of be a mindset shift to recognize that, no, this is a privilege and this is a gift and I should be running to it. And revival can maybe grow in my heart and in this current moment to reframe that in my head. I'm curious, Joel, when have you had those privileged encounters yourself? Because you would not have said yes to working for a, a 501c3 nonprofit that's, that's organizing and settling up the kindling, as you said. You would not be doing ministry, you could find some corporate job if you didn't believe that this was the most vitally important thing to be doing right now. And we're friends. And I like to imagine that these conversations are just conversations among friends that other people get to listen to. When did you have a privileged encounter with the Eucharist that changed everything? Gosh, there were, there were three moments. I'll give you three quick vignettes. Yeah, please. And they, because they all touch on different places that I think we all have. The first was as a freshman in high school, I went on a retreat and um, we had Eucharistic adoration, but it was Sunday afternoon. Like it just wasn't, I know if you've been on a youth retreat and you're listening to this, you know, like usually Saturday night, mm-hmm. that's the big adoration night. But on this one, it was um, very low key. We had adoration on Sunday morning um, and it was kind of an open-ended thing. So we had adoration and then they allowed us to leave and then people would stay in a door of the blessed sacrament. So I stayed behind with this guy named Brent, who was a senior who I looked up to immensely, right? Because he was a wrestler. He was so cool. He was so faithful. He was a, like a state wrestler. Awesome guy. Mm-hmm. And it was just the two of us there, you know, with like a couple core members who were stationed to keep vigil with the blessed sacrament or not. I mean, it's a daytime. So to stay. Yeah. Brent and I left at the same time. I was freshman in high school. And I, I, in that moment, I was happy. I just had a wonderful like it, that was a profound moment where I was like, Jesus, like you're here in the mm-hmm. Eucharist, right? Um, this is beautiful. So as I'm sitting there, 
having this moment with the Lord, me and Brent leave at the same time. And we're having this conversation, walking away. And again, this is like the coolest guy. And he goes, man, I just don't know. But like, like we seem like, it just feels like we're brothers, you know, like we're brothers. And I had this moment of like this connection with Jesus, but also this really cool, but this is connecting me with, with other people. Mm-hmm. Like this is a part of a family. So that's, that's the first kind of moment that I always go back to. The second was in, at the end of college, I was seeing this girl who's a Christian, wonderful young lady, but I went to a, a service with her family and the sermon was all about how Catholics aren't saved. And it became very apparent that there were some sharp theological differences that we'd have to reconcile. And I was struggling with things in my faith at that time as well. It was 2007. The scandals in the church were, were still very much in the conversation. And I was like, why wouldn't I just leave to your point and go, I could be a Protestant pastor. I could be in, in the workforce. I could do a lot of cool things and still love Jesus and just not be Catholic. And so I dug in and said, Lord, like, what would be the thing that would keep me here? And that was part of an intellectual conversion and an intellectual encounter with the theology of the Eucharist and being like, oh, wow, this is, this is supported. And this is, mm-hmm. if this is true, master, to whom else can I go? And I had this intellectual moment. And then the third thing that stands out in my mind is being a dad and being at mass with our kids. And my wife had kind of catechized them to when the, the blessed sacrament was held up after the consecration to say, I love you, Jesus. Mm. And similar in some, you know, some cultural traditions, someone might say, my Lord and my God, you know, mm. um, but they're kids. And so the first time I heard it, I didn't know she had done this. And it was like audible, like out loud, cutting through the silence of mass. And there's this moment of panic, right? Of, oh my gosh, what have my kids done? What are they saying? And, but the people around were, were like visibly moved by it. And then I, I'm like, oh, wow from the mouth of children, mm-hmm. like that's Jesus. And it was an encounter and just sort of this revelation of that's who that is. It shook me out of the, the routine and the stress of being a parent at mass right. to say, <laughs> the Lord, that's you. And so those are three places where I think there's been a, a privileged encounter. I've never had a miraculous moment or like an overly emotional experience in adoration mm-hmm. or at mass, but I've been at masses where, and now I feel myself like, I, I was at mass when uh, we buried Brent because he was killed by an improvised explosive device in Afghanistan. He joined the military. And so this guy, you know, like who I looked up to and we had this, this powerful moment of adoration, just the two of us there together that, that formed this bond. You know, when we buried him, the Eucharist was there. And when I looked over and saw his twin brother in his military uniform, burying his, his twin brother, the Eucharist was there Mm -hmm. and there was hope in that Mm -hmm. because that same sacrament that is the promise of eternal life that we worshiped and adored together, that he received, that he would have received while, while he was on, on base, that we received on deployment was there for us as nourishment in our grief, as we said goodbye. And so those moments and those vignettes are like the privileged places where I think about the Eucharist, it's Jesus who was there. It wasn't like this symbolic thing. It was Jesus who was, was in these places and in these moments, loving us and, and walking with us. And so, yeah, I, I think that's it for me. So nothing ever miraculous, but I guess maybe more emotionally moving than I, I realized. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that with us because you bring up that it's often in those very simple or quite significant like core memory moments where we realize like the Eucharist is here and is the anchor, is kind of the through line in all of that. You, you share the story about Brent and the Eucharist is there giving us hope in a moment of great sadness and, and tragedy. I, I think of COVID not being able to go to mass and our pastor improvises, how can we bring the Eucharist to people and puts yeah. a monstrance in the back of a red pickup truck and drove around the territorial area of our parishes. And literally Jesus drove past my house for nine weeks during COVID and it was just a little less lonely in that two minutes that the the car was coming down the street because Jesus is coming to us in this moment of suffering and isolation that the Eucharist is the anchor. Is the revival ultimately about trying to get people to think of those privileged moments for themselves or to, to seek out those privileged encounters? Yeah, I think it's both. I think it's reflecting on just your walk with Jesus and, and Jesus through the Eucharist. But then also asking, how can I seek those things out and how can I dispose myself to them? Like going to 
the Eucharistic Adoration Chapel of your church, or even if you don't have one, going and sitting in the presence of the tabernacle in your church mm. is just putting yourself in a moment to say, I'm, I'm here. And like any relationship, most of our lives and the relationships we have with people we love are filled with moments that we will forget, right? We just do. But those moments are significant because all of the little parts make up the whole. Mm -hmm. But that sometimes those little moments that we didn't expect to become big moments or peak moments suddenly just evolve into that. But it's because we showed up. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's part of the call too. And to say, when you come to mass, what is your disposition when you come to mass? And some weeks it's just going to be like, I am here and that is enough, but I'm here and I, I want to listen and I want to sit and I'm, I'm going to be present. And some weeks something powerful will happen. And, and most weeks it'll be all the little moments that just make up the beauty of a relationship mm -hmm. that we'll forget and yet are profoundly impacting in eternal ways that we, we may not even realize. Mm -hmm. But it's the disposition. How do we approach it? Do we enter in? Do we pray? Do we invite the Lord in? Do we allow ourselves to be a little bit uncomfortable in approaching you know, the Eucharist and saying, this isn't as I approach mm -hmm. to receive, this is, this is not another moment. This is not an ordinary part of my week. Right. And, and that mindset shift is, I think, the call at the grassroots yeah. for how we approach this differently. Yeah, that walk down the aisle to receive the Eucharist or that kneeling in that, what, seven, eight minutes of the consecration is the best few minutes of your week and sets yeah. up the week or bookends the week or just kind of allows you to breathe for a moment because there's nothing like this in the world. Tell me about the particulars of the revival and I've, I, you, I mean, we've had this conversation multiple times, but is it the revival? Is it the Congress? People are seeing the logo. People are watching videos. They're listening to podcasts. They're being encouraged to go to this thing next July. Give us kind of the 10,000 foot view. Okay, what's practically, you, you mentioned building the kindling so that the fire can, can take off. So what is the kindling? What is being built right now so that revival can really be invited to occur? Yeah, the structure is, Simple. It's a three-year plan for how yeah, we build that, build that kindling. The first year is the diocesan year. So working with diocesan offices across the United States to help them build structures and frameworks to support parishes, which ultimately support the grassroots renewal and revival of our, our love of the Eucharist. So the diocesan year, uh, there have been numerous dioceses that have done Eucharistic processions mm -hmm. as a diocese are hosting Eucharistic congresses again. Some have a longstanding tradition of a Eucharistic Congress. I know the Diocese of Archdiocese of Atlanta is one of them, but some places are saying, hey, let's, let's do this here. Uh, other dioceses are incorporating that into programming. So I was in uh, the Archdiocese of Kansas City, Kansas, at one of their camps for their rural youth conference recently. And their camp theme this past year was Eucharistic amazement as part of the revival. So the diocesan camp is saying, let's make this a theme. So in starting to be intentional about how do we talk about the Eucharist? How do we invite people into that relationship with Jesus through the Eucharist? Moving into the parish year, which is where things become really significant at the grassroots level. And there's going to be a couple of things we ask parishes to do as best practices. The first is to say, how are you going to reinvigorate worship? So we've mm -hmm. talked about that. How do you promote the art of celebration of the liturgy and say, are we approaching this reverently? Are we approaching this with our best, with our best, are we giving this the first fruits, recognizing that for most of our parishioners, this is their one and only experience of our parish. We can invite them to other things, but this is it. So that's the first piece. How do we reinvigorate worship? Uh, the second piece is how do we provide moments of personal encounter through Eucharistic adoration and through the availability of the sacrament of reconciliation, uh, providing people with those quiet moments where they can be with the Lord. Certainly personal encounter can happen at mass, but are there places outside of that too? Are we doing do we start to look at having more opportunities for adoration of the blessed sacrament? Maybe you can't do a 24-hour perpetual adoration because you can't get people to do that 3 a.m. Mm -hmm. time slot. <laughs> totally get it. But can we offer times that are open uh, to folks to do that? Is the availability of the sacrament of reconciliation something that our parish needs to look at and, and stretch ourselves with? I think that's the thing. We're asking people to stretch a little bit in what maybe has always been done so that we can create the space in the stretching for revival. The third thing is we are going to ask parishes to engage in formation around the Eucharist. So really robust formation through two ways. We are going to provide some free resources. All of these things are free for pastors to use, uh, to have a charismatic Eucharistic series of preaching at some point in the year. 
to say intentionally, we are going to, over the course of the next four to seven weeks, preach on the gospel message and how the Eucharist ties into that so that we tie the Eucharist back to the saving work of Jesus because it is a part of the saving work of Jesus and teach again. Most people are going to come to mass. That is where most of your parishioners will get their catechesis is what you talk about at the liturgy. The second piece of that is a parish-wide small group study. Again, a free resource that parishes can utilize within existing small groups, or they can start something new that will bring people in and deepen their understanding and knowledge of who Jesus is in the Eucharist. Part of this is, and I'd shared about it, there's an intellectual facet of how we encounter Jesus and the Blessed Sacrament. We are an educated people. And oftentimes there are good questions. Okay, wait a second. So you mean that I'm seeing bread and wine, but it's not not at all bread and wine. It's not like half bread and wine and half. No, it's totally Jesus's body, blood, soul, and divinity. The bread no longer remains. The wine no longer remains. Okay, how can that be? And there's ways of talking about that and understanding that, but it takes some conversation. And so that series will help focus on that piece. And the last is to send us out as missionaries. The Eucharist sends us forth to be Christ's hands and feet. And so part of that will be, we're going to encourage parishes to invite, to challenge parishioners to invite somebody they know back to church. Mm -hmm. This is different than like a, hey, go invite somebody to church. And it's not an invite somebody back to mass campaign, though it might be. It's who has fallen away during COVID? Who's fallen away maybe in your family? Could you invite them back to something at church with the intention of getting them back to the Blessed Sacrament? And I love that because it's a little bit more flexible. Maybe somebody is ready to be invited back to mass, but maybe somebody needs to get invited to food truck Friday just to hang out socially and be back on the church grounds. But the challenge then is great for everyone. Invite somebody back. And again, it's not my Protestant coworker or my atheist neighbor. It's, do you know a fallen away Catholic? Mm -hmm. Invite that person back. So I love the specificity there. And then the second aspect of sending us out as missionaries is to commit to the poor, both the spiritually and materially more materially poor in your community that's one of the effects of reception of the Eucharist. The Eucharist commits us to the poor. And we're going to ask people to lean into that, to say, is your parish a place that's addressing, again, spiritual poverty and mm-hmm. material poverty in your community? Because that demonstrates the effects of who we receive. Right. Yeah, Jesus gives some concrete free- things, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it is. It's more concrete than I think a lot of people have realized. Because sometimes, you know, anything that's got a big brand behind it, and a brand is not a bad word here. Like, it's just, there's a logo, and there's emails, and there's videos, and you're seeing people push going to a Congress. But no, the real, at the end of the day, the grassroots effort is real people who have this privileged encounter with Jesus, bringing people into the the new life that they have because of that privileged encounter. And even saying new life, Somebody might be listening to this and like, well, I've been Catholic for 45 years. Like, there's nothing new about this. You're right. There isn't. But but you are a new creation every time you receive the Eucharist. And that's something worth sharing. And, and I love this. Let's talk about this commitment to the poor component, because I don't know that that's a piece that I've heard a ton about. If we're reviving this love of the Eucharist, that means this revived love of those who have not. What are some of those practical things that you're encouraging parishes and dioceses to really lean into when it comes to this? Yeah, I think, again, it's on two fronts, the spiritually poor and the materially poor. Mm -hmm. So the spiritually poor, I think it's as a community discerning who, who is that to step back for a second and I think sometimes this language is challenging. Mm -hmm. It's not meant to be, but it's an outgrowth of our beliefs. If the Eucharist is Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity, that is the greatest gift that any person could receive because it's not a thing. It's a person. It's, it's the very gift of Jesus himself given, given to us. If you don't have that, you are spiritually poor mm-hmm. because it's the greatest thing. And so how do I, how do I bring that to people? And I think that's the question is in our community, who are the spiritually poor? Who are the lost or the broken? Who are separated from Jesus in the Eucharist? And why are they separated from Jesus in the Eucharist? And that's going to look different for everybody. And then as a parish, it's intentionally leaning in and discerning how do we serve those people and help them encounter our Lord in the Eucharist? In our community, it's a ton of fallen away Catholics. Okay, why did they fall away? And how do we bring, bring them back? Is it we're in the Pacific Northwest and it's a very secular atheistic culture. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to lean into that? I think sometimes we just kind of say, well, give people the truth and they can take it or leave it. You know, here's the medicine and it just is what it is. But I think that there's a way that we design our outreach uh, to the to the mission territory. Mm-hmm. 
and figuring out what does that look like and going beyond like a program or how do we just bring somebody back in the building to serve those folks. For the material poor, I think a parish has to ask a question and it was asked when I worked at a parish all the time, which is if we shut down, would all of the non-Catholics in our community be rallying to make sure that we were able to stay, stay open? Mm-hmm. What reason would they have to say our parish cannot close? Uh, because the Catholics, yeah, they'll, they would say, we can't let this parish close because we get mass and we get the sacraments here. But are we ingrained enough in the community and how we serve that the non-Catholics would be pounding on the door saying, you can't close, you've got to stay open, what can we do? Mm. And I think that's a question to start with. And I think the outgrowth is serving the material poor, materially poor mm-hmm. in your community. Are there crisis pregnancy centers you can pour into? Are there you know, services for displaced and homeless individuals mm-hmm. that you can pour into? Are there things that exist already as a parish that you could give prominence to as far as St. Vincent de Paul societies or you know, a warming shelter mm-hmm. or a place where distributed. Are there new initiatives that you could launch as a parish that do not exist in your community that your community needs? Oftentimes, we forget that as a parish, we have a responsibility to every person in our community, not just the registered parishioners. And there are materially poor brothers and sisters who, if we aren't doing something to address that or supporting organizations that are, it becomes scandalous on the level of what St. Paul wrote about in his first letter to the Corinthians of gathering at celebrations. Mm -hmm. Some are well-fed and some are coming, are coming hungry. Yeah. And that's not to say, you know, you've got to remedy the program problem before you can receive the Eucharist with a clear conscience, right. but some places aren't even trying. It's yeah. like, well, yeah. there's other people who do that. Well, how do, can you at least support it? Right. You know, right. Even if you know what it means. It's a good question to ask because I think that there is that, that component of, this is not just for ourselves. The Eucharist is literally not this self-contained thing. Like it's something that transforms us for for the greater world. We're ending all of our podcasts this season, Joel, by asking folks kind of one key question. And you're our first interview. So this will be the first time we've asked anyone this. So, so you get the first shot. I don't have to say, oh no, somebody already said that. Say something different. You get 60 seconds to talk to somebody. Let's let's imagine you brought them up, the the, the spiritually poor individual, the, the person who maybe fell away during COVID and didn't come back to church. There wasn't anything for them. They didn't really believe it in the first place. Father never made an effort to know their name, whatever the reason might be. You get 60 seconds with them, completely uninterrupted to tell them something about the Eucharist. What do you say to them? That's such a, that's such a good question, too, because I, oftentimes you only have like 60 seconds, yeah. right? I think I start with the reality of love. You know, Archbishop Fulton Sheen said the greatest love story of all time is contained in a tiny, tiny white host. And... I think to just talk about what is the character of love, love is gift. Like we know that to love one another is to like receive another person as a gift. Like I give myself holy for you, you give yourself holy for me. And that's, that's what real like authentic love looks like. And we feel that we also know that we're created beings and that love is often expressed in like physical touch, like that there's something powerful about that in the embrace of love and, and in, in the ways that like love is communicated through touch, you know, you look at a parent with a newborn child, like wanting to hold them closer or somebody, you know, gently touching the face of, of a dying person. And to say like the, the profound reality of the Eucharist is theological, it's experiential, but it revolves around love and mm-hmm. sort of the way to dig into that, I think is, and to speak, to spark curiosity is to say, if the Lord loves us, would he not give us a way that he could give himself totally over to us and we could be totally received by him? through a physical form, through mm-hmm. physical, through physical touch. And isn't that the character of love? Like, when do you do it that way if you were the Lord? Or would you remain distant and far? Or would you provide a physical, tangible expression because you know that we are physical, tangible creatures? Mm. And if you can ascend to, if you can sort of say, I could see that, say, okay, like, let's dig down the rabbit hole of like how far deeply that goes. Because if that's true, this is not a thing, it's a person. And if it's a person, it's the most important person. And if it's a person who can transform your life, like, doesn't that change things? Mm-hmm. And then a company from there. Yeah. Wouldn't that make it worth the effort to just, yeah, just go see. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time to share all this with us, Joel. I think it's a great conversation starter for a lot of folks and their families and among their friends. Where can we follow you? Where can we read what you're writing? Where can we see what the Congress and Revival is doing and be a part of it? Yeah, you can follow me at Chasing Humility on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow Eucharistic Revival on at Eucharistic Revival. 
on Instagram and you can follow our Facebook account as well. And you can find more information about the Eucharistic Congress event, which is a moment within this movement of Eucharistic Revival at EucharisticCongress.org and find ways to get involved with the Eucharistic Revival at EucharisticRevival.org. Awesome. Thanks so much for taking the time, Joel. I'm really grateful. Yeah, thanks, Katie. One of the things I've been so struck by in my conversations with different folks, specifically about the National Eucharistic Congress and the work of the revival, is that we don't get to decide when revival begins. It's not like we can set it on the calendar and say, okay, here's when the Holy Spirit's going to start reviving hearts and minds and souls. We get to set it up. We get to provide the place. We get to beg the Lord to arrive in a new way. And then hopefully get to sit back and, and receive. Hopefully get to, to rest in the reality, knowing that the Lord delivers, that the Lord provides, that revival is a work of the spirit that we remain open to, not something that we simply plan. And every time we encounter the Blessed Sacrament, something new can occur in our lives, in our hearts. The movement is different every single time. The encounter is renewed every single time. Jesus Christ present to us in a different way every single time. I think it's important to remember that the work of the revival and the planning for the Congress and the movement that is taking place in this country and all the different kind of components of that and the moving parts of that, we get to be a part of it. It's for us and we get to be a part of it. And if you want to learn more, we have a link down in the show notes to the Eucharistic Revival website where there's kind of three different tabs, one about the Congress, one about a pilgrimage, and one that's about the revival and the moments that are happening at parish and diocesan levels. And I really encourage you to go look at the website to buy your tickets to the Congress if you want to go next summer to see how you can be involved with this pilgrimage walk across America to even just, you know, have resources available for yourself to be able to go talk to your pastor, to people within your parish community about what more can be done to continue this work of loving Jesus in the Eucharist more. That the revival is not something happening outside of us, but it's happening within us that we get to be a part of and is really quite profound and beautiful. So check out that link down in the show notes. We'd also love it if you'd share this conversation with friends, with family, with people that maybe don't know about the Eucharistic Revival or who have maybe mentioned, oh, I, I don't know what's going on with all of that. Perhaps something that was said was moving and stirring in your heart. We'd be really grateful if you'd go and share that with other folks. Give this podcast a rating, a review, a follow. Uh, we'd be really grateful if it was out there to the people that you know and love, especially if Ave Explores is something that you have loved in your time listening to it. Now we're going to transition just a bit, as we often do. We've got our bonus conversation this week with a Eucharistic preacher, my good friend, Father Patrick Mary Briscoe, sharing with us what it's like to be unified by the Blessed Sacrament. Father Patrick Mary Briscoe, welcome to Ave Explorers. Hey, thanks for having me on, Katie. Great to be with you. Full disclosure, we're friends, everybody. But I feel like I, I have to say that about all of our guests this season, because I only really wanted to talk to my friends about the Eucharist. Tell us who you are, where you are, what you do. And why you love Jesus in the Eucharist. Who am I? I am a pilgrim. I'm a Catholic priest. I'm a Dominican friar. And I'm a member of the province of St. Joseph. That's the Northeast province. What do I do? I live the Dominican life. One cool project I've got going on right now with my friends, a couple of friar pals, is the Godsplaining podcast. So we love that. I live here in Washington, D.C. at our Dominican seminary. It is called the Dominican House of Studies. <laughs> We really, we really went out of our way to come up with something very creative there. So it's what is it? Oh, it's the, it's the house where we study <laughs> and it's Dominican. Okay. So I live at the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C. And I'm the editor of Our Sunday Visitor, the Catholic newspaper and website. That's kind of my shtick right now. I'm the author of the My Daily Visitor of Seasonal Devotionals from OSV. And I've got a book forthcoming on St. Thomas Aquinas in the Eucharist. So... I didn't know That'll that. Can you out. tell us about that? That'll be out in January. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. So there's a beautiful prayer that Dominicans say every day when we begin the divine office. It's called the O Sacred Banquet. And St. Thomas Aquinas wrote that prayer as part of the feast day uh, celebrations for Corpus Christi. Mm. So it's actually the Magnificat Antiphon in the liturgy there. Anyway, so we so we took this little prayer and we say it multiple times a day. 
and it's a prayer about the Eucharist. And this book is a little commentary on that prayer, which means a lot to Dominicans and I think will help everyday Catholics get just a taste of what St. Thomas Aquinas has to say about the Eucharist. So it's intended to be a kind of kind of theological book, but most, mostly devotional, mostly something intended to help people unpack ideas about the Eucharist and to pray. So it's coming out, uh, yeah, it'll be out next January. So that's very, very exciting. That's another fun little project I've got going. Yeah, busy guy. I didn't know y'all said like an additional prayer. And I know quite a few Dominicans. Is that, that's not like a secret. I guess you guys no, just aren't like no, telling no. everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's the kickoff. So, <laughs> oh, sacred banquet in which Christ becomes our food. The memory of this passion is celebrated. The soul is filled with grace and a pledge of future glory is given to us. So that's the first, that's the first thing we pray whenever we pray together in front of the blessed sacrament. Wow. I love that there's kind of this anchor because that's what the Eucharist is. At the end of the day, it's this, it's this anchor for us in the, the storms of life that there is a place where Jesus is in a tabernacle and I can go see him. God is everywhere, but Jesus is there in a very specific spot. But that can sometimes be hard for people, especially non-Catholics to understand they, they think maybe it's an idolization or, or they think that it makes us somewhat superstitious or, you know, the common phrase, oh, are you a bunch of cannibals? Why do you think sometimes there's so much misunderstanding when it comes to that very specific in front of the Eucharist, I am with Jesus out in the world? The Eucharist fundamentally as a doctrine comes as a consequence of the incarnation. So the bigger reality is that God, God entered into our universe and willingly made himself small for us, like unto us in all things except sin, right? That's the common phrase. So I think the Eucharist is tough because it hinges actually on this bigger claim, this bigger, this, this bigger doctrine that Jesus Christ, the word, the beloved son of the father took flesh, that he lived among us, that he died and rose again from the dead. Those are, those, those are all way crazier in my mind than the fact that God would communicate himself to us through food. The food idea, I don't think is that difficult actually, because <laughs> we, we need food and food unites us. One, one beautiful way of thinking about the Eucharist comes from St. Augustine. St. Augustine in his confessions, um, hears the Lord say to him, unlike other food, which you turn into your own body, the Eucharist is the kind of food that turns you into me. That's a paraphrase, obviously. Mm -hmm. But the point is that, that normal food, we take it, we break it down. Our bodies use it for, for energy, right? That's how, we, that's how we grow. That's how we stay going. But the Eucharist doesn't work like that. The Eucharist doesn't get broken down in us. We get transformed by the Eucharist, which changes us into Christ. Mm -hmm. So th that, that to me makes a, a lot of sense. If, you, if you're first thinking, well, you've got a God that loves you so much that will take on human appearance, that will again be like us in all things but sin. Okay, so if we've got a God that's willing to do that, of course, this God will sustain us with his very self. This is what mothers do, right? They, they sustain their children when babies are in utero, right? From their own sustenance, right? Okay, well, God would love us at least that much. I think that's an important place to begin, actually, when we're thinking about the Eucharist. Is the Eucharist, is the Eucharist a striking thing in and of itself? Well, no, it's a consequence of this amazing thing that God has done in the mystery of the Incarnation. I'm going to be sitting with that for a while. I'm not a Thomist by any means, but now I kind of want to be. <laughs> you, you Dominicans do a great job of breaking these things down. I think that's why there's so many of you in the Eucharistic preacher crew. Tell us a little bit about how you arrived at not just the Dominican House of Studies, you know, uh, trademark name, but that you like you wanted to wear this medieval habit, like you wanted to be part of this countercultural organization. It's not even an organization, movement, apostolate, life within the church. The origin of the friars movement. And so by friars movement, I mean all the movements of friars. So including Franciscans, right? The origin of the friars movement is that the church was, the, the church was in great need in that, in that time in the middle ages when the friars movement began. So I think there could be a tendency to look back at Francis and Dominic and the medieval world and say, that was a time when the church was really great. That's a false read. That was a period of great instability within the church, actually, where there was great trial. The rise of, of modern cities was putting a lot of pressure on the church. We were, we were moving away from the, from the bastion of monasticism, which for so long had preserved the Christian West. And we had to, we had to come up with something new, with a, with a new way to support and sustain these Catholics that were moving away from the monastic enclaves into cities, moving from a, from a rural and, and principally agrarian culture, right, to, 
to a trade culture. Okay, so these are these are kind of hallmarks of the kinds of cultural phenomena we're seeing in the Middle Ages. And Francis and Dominic responded to that, each in a slightly different way, but with a way that is fundamentally the same, by saying what what people need is a is a vision of life that is radically conformed to Christ. So for both Francis and Dominic, their their lives were given over to living to living such that people would always see Christ clearly through them. And that spoke to me, you know, seeing the seeing the chaos of our own day, which I, I don't think needs any any further elaboration at this point. People could substitute a, a, everything that they're experiencing, but but seeing the, the the rapid pace of change, all of us should be should be looking for new new ways to allow Christ to show through in our lives. And I think Francis and Dominic did that in an extraordinary way in the Middle Ages, and that that way is not actually trapped in that time. That was that was sort of their genius, especially Dominic that this way of life could be adapted and could flourish in subsequent ages. And so I think that's part of why you're seeing a renewal in both the Franciscan and Dominican movements today, because our charism is still extremely relevant and is at the service of the church. And that, Katie, is also why so many Franciscan and Dominican friars are participating in the revival, Mm -hmm. because we have this at the very heart of our vocation to love and serve the church, especially as she's in need. So when the church says, we need you to do this, uh, Dominican friars, Franciscan friars don't hesitate to say, well, of course. Yeah. Because that that is the spirit of Francis and Dominic, which forms us. You referenced Francis and Dominic at a certain moment, stepping in and responding. And I very much feel like we kind of need that even more in the modern age where there's constant connection, constant noise. Francis and Dominic had to... <laughs> had to go to these individual places and like you guys can multiply yourselves by way of podcasts and YouTube and doing interviews and hopping on planes and being in a place to do a, a mission. So it's, it's almost like the Lord's like, great. So that was established in the medieval times. And now we've got modern age where we can actually do this even more. What, what though do you often find is a resistance to that? And I'll make a reference to something. The friar, I want OPEs to do a whole podcast series on the new show on Peacock, Mrs. Davis. I need you guys to watch this. I need somebody to talk to about this. And there's this moment, there's this moment where this nun who's like this crime fighting nun who's fighting this evil AI force in the world is sitting in a restaurant and this guy walks up to her and says, I like your costume. And she goes, it's not a costume. And he goes, you're for real. And she went, I'm for real. And it's like that they, somebody spoke to a Catholic nun or monk because that conversation is one that you've had many times. Have you met, this is my question. Have you met resistance to this radical life or to this Eucharist that you've given yourself over to or to this preaching that animates everything about you? And how have you handled that in your own vocation, in your own spirituality, at the end of the day, when it's just you, Patrick Mary, who's committed to this church, but also knows that there are some people who will never get that. How do you handle that? Well, I really feel for my brothers who are diocesan priests, because in many ways, it's much easier to be religious today. Mm. You know, we've given up all kinds of liberties, which our brother priests who are diocesan priests have, you know, so I, I don't have a personal checking account. I don't have investments. I don't have a retirement fund. You know, all, all those things belong to the order. So, so there's there's nothing properly said in my own name. So that's that very big difference in the way that a diocesan priest would live a kind of simple life, but still preserve a lot of financial liberty, for example. Whereas you know our our lives as as Dominicans are are poor, and mm-hmm. and they're poor in this way. I'm completely dependent on the order, and that that's real. And and people sense that when when you start to when you start to talk about it. Another is that. We, that we only have things insofar as they're useful to the ministry. So we can have computers and cell phones or whatever else, but, but only, only insofar as they're at the service of the ministry. So we don't have, we don't accumulate a lot of personal things. And in fact, our, our constitution says not to, we don't move <laughs> furniture when we move. So I think that that, that demonstration kind of captures people's eye. And, and when I said, when I started to say, I actually feel a, a strong sense of solidarity from my brothers who are diocesan priests, because I think the Roman collar is really the symbol of the clerical sex abuse crisis mm-hmm. in a way that my monastic looking habit, I'm not a monk, but, but we look like monks, mm-hmm. is not. And so when people encounter a Dominican friar, the first thing they often think is, what is that? You know, they know it's, they know it's some kind of Catholic, religious, spiritual thing, but they can't identify us directly. Whereas when someone sees the Roman collar, the very first thing they think of, I think, is clerical sexual sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. And that's not insurmountable. And there's mm-hmm. all kinds of things that priests can do in that context. But but it does give us a real advantage because the habit sparks exactly what you're saying, uh, that kind of conversation where people can be curious, where they don't really know, 
quite who we are. And it gives us an exam. It gives us an opportunity really to, to, to preach, to give the kerygma mm-hmm. because the, the habit is that our, our very close are that it's white because we're living gospel purity. We wear a scapular, which is a sign of devotion to the Virgin Mary. And you can go through the, the, the rest of the parts of it and, and give really remarkable examples to people. So for us, it's just another opportunity to mm-hmm. undertake our mission of preaching. And it gives you, like you said, this opportunity to explain what you've given your life over for the Eucharist being at the heart of that. The question we want, really wanted to ask you, we're friends, so we could just talk all day and uh, I have to rein myself in a little bit because I would just like to, but the Eucharist is for us as Catholics, our anchor, our source, our summit, but can sometimes be a, a source of consternation to not Catholics to say at the funeral or the wedding or the baptism, the announcement is made. Those who are in, I believe the most frequent wedding I went to, or the most recent wedding I went to, I heard the phrase, those who are not in full communion or in proper standing. And I like, I kind of made like a face to my husband. So it was like proper standing. Like what, who determines the proper standing other than the individual with the conscience that is or is not formed well. But there's all sorts of different ways that we say Catholics come to the table, not Catholics come for a blessing or stay in your pew. And people bristle at that. You know, I think of my, my non-Catholic father-in-law who goes to Catholic mass every single Sunday, but does not go up to receive communion because he has not become Catholic yet. I'm 99.9% sure he believes that that's Jesus. And so like, there's this like, just do it, man. Just go fill the paperwork out. Just like let somebody spread some oil over your forehead. But then also there's this like, well, no, but why wouldn't I be allowed anyway? How do we explain the Eucharist is this unifying thing when there is also this very much like, but not if you're like, you cannot receive if you're not Catholic. I'm going to let you answer that very hard question. I always, so, so I, there are two things I like to do when this question comes up. The first is that I like to make it even more difficult. You know, so, <laughs> Classic so, so, Dominican. The, the, so the phrase you use, it was good standing, right? Good standing or proper good, standing. Yeah, yeah. I, so I haven't heard it put a, exactly that way, but but I think I understand exactly what it means. It means, are you, are you a Catholic who is practicing? Mm-hmm. Have you made a regular confession? You know, are you actually prepared to receive Holy Communion? And so I think that's the first thing that we need to address, actually, when we're talking about this sort of thing, is that we Catholics have to have to be attentive to our own house and to to really do what the church teaches, which is that we have to first have this idea of sin and the way that sin affects the body of Christ, recognizing that we ourselves can contribute to that disunity every time we sin. So so it could be very tempting to say, um, well, I have this sin and it doesn't really hurt anyone. It's just a part of my life. That is completely false. Mm. Every sin wounds the body of Christ. Because Christians aren't saved alone. Christians are saved together in Christ. Jesus gave us the church as the means of our salvation, saying to us, you all are going to do this as a body. <laughs> and so, so I think we, we, have to, we have to start this conversation by realizing that, that sin wounds the body. All of our personal sins are not just private. They hurt the Christian community, which is why confession is so powerful, right? It's part of the communal reparation, the communal experience of penance. It's going back to the body and saying, I've wronged the body. And I need the body's forgiveness. I need you, the, 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 I need the church's forgiveness because I wounded the church by my own sin. Okay, so we have to recognize that at first saying like, well, it's not only about Catholics receiving Holy Communion. It's about Catholics who are living the full gospel as Jesus taught it to us and living that vibrantly and um, receiving Holy Communion. So then, so then when, you, when you start to see that, you say like, well, actually the Lord himself, St. Paul in the, New, in the New Testament gives us a pretty clear understanding of sin and how sin wounds the body and how, you know, for example, as Jesus says, if, if we realize that we have a dispute with another, as we approach the altar, we have to leave our gift at the altar and go and seek forgiveness before we can approach the altar. So that that's a clear example from Christ or from St. Paul, who tells us that if we take the cup, if we, if we drink the cup with sin on our soul, uh, we bring condemnation upon ourselves. Okay. So it's pretty clear there in the new Testament that, that we have to be attentive to our sin and seek forgiveness before we can enter into communion. Now, as regards our separated brethren, this is simply a, a manifestation of the actual reality. Mm-hmm. And I think that the problem is a lot of times it's easy to forget the schisms and divisions in the church. And it's very tempting to say, well, we all believe basically the same things and to, to want to go along to get along. But that's not actually the truth of the situation. You know how I know it's not actually the truth of the situation? Because the bishop doesn't command those churches. Like we, we, we go to Catholic mass in certain places. So I think that the, the moment is difficult because it's one of the places where, where we have to face things as they really are and can't mm. paper over 
a situation that we wish were otherwise. I mean, do, do I wish every Christian were Catholic in the world? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes, absolutely. With my whole heart. Mm-hmm. Is it extremely difficult to address those moments where we have to say, well, actually, there are these longstanding wounds and mm-hmm. and we, we need to own up to that. Yes, it is. But 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 I think again, it's about it's about facing the situation as it actually is. Mm-hmm. And what do we say then? Like the person who's hearing this who has the non-Catholic family member who but they bristle when they go to Catholic Sunday Mass on Christmas or Easter or when they go to the family function. Um, I mean, I I can speak to this. It convicted my grandmother to convert. She came to my first communion when I was in second grade. Everybody's walking up to receive communion, including my grandfather, who was very much a lapsed Catholic at the time, but who like he was like, up, oh, up, oh, like, you know, Puerto Rican heritage kicked back in and I'm going to go through the motions because I know what I'm doing. And my mom and dad saying something to him afterwards. And he was like, oh, well, then I'll go back to confession like, you know, the next time because he was convicted and she was convicted and she converted within two years and became Catholic because she she missed it. But that was like this internal conversion that happened. I don't think it was anything that anybody said other than the witness of her grandchild receiving first communion. Sometimes people have to be told something. What do you recommend we say? Yeah, that's extremely beautiful. For me, I just say very simply, like, you could just ask someone, well, do you believe in your heart of hearts everything the Catholic Church teaches? <laughs> and there, there, are many, there are many things that people don't because there, yeah. there, there are many difficult teachings. And if the person says no, then you say, well, communion is actually a sign that, that you believe those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because the, the very word means being in union. And so, right. so, so if you yourself are willing to admit, oh, I actually don't believe that only men can be priests or take whatever doctrine is difficult, you know, in Catholic teaching. If people say, I don't actually believe that, then you're able to say, well, this is what we're talking about. And they can accept that, they, that they've made a kind of decision in their own life. Right, Whereas right. if they say, well, actually, I think I do believe what the church teaches, then it's an opportunity to make the invitation that you're suggesting, Katie. Mm-hmm. You say, well, actually, well, well great. On. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is very easy as a point yeah. of fact, you know. Yeah. We can no, remedy this situation. That's a great, I mean, we say source and summit, not just as like this, oh, like think of it as a mountain. Like everything we teach is the source of that is Jesus present to us in this way. And it's the peak of everything that we believe. So from top to bottom, like you really have to be able to invest. And if you're not, then you'll feel that distance, but perhaps that's then the prompting to want to come closer. Father, thank you so much for joining us. We ask one simple question at the end of all these episodes. And it's my favorite question to ask this season. You get to talk to anybody. The person is of your choosing. You just have to tell us who it is for about 60 seconds about the Blessed Sacrament. Maybe this is a believer. Maybe it's a fallen away Catholic, a lapsed Catholic, a new returner. You get to pick. Maybe it's just a fellow brother sitting in the the friar's living room watching Mrs. Davis, which I still really need you to go watch so we can talk about it. But you get to talk to somebody about the Eucharist. Who is it and what do you say? Is blessed Carlo Acutis? Yes. Anybody you want. Yeah. That's your thought experiment. That's what I asked. (laughs) And I asked him what it was that prompted him to go, you know, as a a teenager, as a young man to daily mass. Mm. Because I so, want yeah. to know, I want to know how to share that because I, yeah. because it clearly transformed it. Blessed Carlos says, right, that, that when we go out and when we look at the sun, we get a tan. But when we, when we spend time in front of the Blessed Sacrament, we're transformed into Christ. Mm. So he understood the way that the Eucharist radiates light and life. And I would want to hear how that transformed his life as a young teen. Yeah. Do you ever wonder like what he'd be doing? You know, like had he not died. Oh, that's pretty straightforward. He would run our Sunday visitor. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be out of a job. <laughs> that's right. I, I had that conversation with a mutual friend of ours, Meg Hunter Comer. And she was like, I don't like to play the what if game. God took him when he needed him. It's like, but I like to run out the clock, right? Like what would his Pokemon score have been? And where would he be? And, and, you know, would he be a priest? Would he be married? Would he just be a nice Italian guy going to daily mass? Because that's what he loved, Right. But yeah, Father Patrick Mary, where can we follow you? Where can we listen to your podcast and read all the great stuff you're writing? Yeah, please, please check out all the projects. Um, so God's Planning Podcast is godsplaining.org or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Read me at oursundayvisitor.com and follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Patrick Mary OP. Thanks so much, Father. Great to chat with you. These conversations with our Eucharistic preachers have been incredible and fun and and challenging and, and just gives us even more content to continue to dive into the reality of the goodness of the Eucharist and what that means for us 
You can follow Father Patrick Murray Briscoe on all these various social media platforms. Like you mentioned, a link is down in the show notes to his profile on the OurSundayVisitor.com magazine website, as well as his social media. We're grateful that you joined us this week. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. Next week, we'll be back for a rounding out episode of our season with Bishop Cousins, the brain behind a lot of what's going on in the revival. So we hope you join us then. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.